the Amazon Synod has concluded, what impact will this have on the church both globally and here in the U.S.? The United States bishops are meeting, so what's in store for the church locally? We'll also answer a question about proper reception of communion, and we kick off a series on the sacraments. All this and more coming up next. Welcome to A View from the Top with Bishop Gregory Parks, Bishop of the Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is a candid and hopeful conversation on current events that affect our church, our community, and our country. Now, here's Bishop Parks and the General Manager of Spirit FM, John Morris. Hello, Bishop. It's good to see you again. John, uh, always great to be with you. What's the good news? What have you been up to the last couple of weeks? <laughs> well, I've been pretty busy getting uh, back to ministry, and something that was a, a, an occasion for joy uh, was this past weekend. I was at Corpus Christi Parish in Temple Terrace to celebrate their 60th anniversary as a parish. Wow, 60 years. In that community, and it's a very multicultural parish, and they had that kind of theme present throughout the liturgy and through the celebration afterward. I saw you wearing a lei. <laughs> I did. They had kind of an aloha theme. Uh, uh, luau for the reception afterward, but the music was bilingual at the Mass, and also they had a, a roasted pig, you know, for nice. the reception, so nice. definitely had a cultural flair to it. It really shows the diversity of our diocese. It sure does. You know, we, we have faithful that come from many different cultures, and that only enhances and enriches the church here in the Diocese of St. Petersburg. And not only here in the Diocese of St. Petersburg, but globally. The church has celebrated Mass all over the world in various languages. Uh, many of the bishops of South America and the Amazon region recently met in Rome to talk about church ministry in that part of the world, a world that there are very interesting and uh, ministry challenges in that part of the world. Yeah, there, there sure are, John, and that's one of the reasons that Pope Francis called for this synod for the Amazon, and it was bishops from that region as well as bishops from all over the world that were participating. We had uh, two of our bishops from the United States were invited to be present for the deliberations and for the proceedings there. But you're right, that region does face some unique challenges. Of course, there's indigenous people that still live there. It's in a very ecologically sensitive area, and that's been compromised somewhat over the years. There's very limited number of priests in that region and a large number of faithful. So unfortunately, Mass is not celebrated for the people there on a, what you would even call a, a somewhat regular basis. And so that's a particular challenge that the Synod sought to address. We have challenges here in the United States where we might have, and I don't know the ratio, so I'm just throwing out numbers here, but maybe one priest for every, I don't know, thousand families that are in a parish. And a lot of times we're fortunate, even in our own diocese, we might complain that we only have two priests in our, in our parish. Down in that part of the world, you might have 20,000 people for one priest, and that's covering a big area where there's very little transportation. So oftentimes the priest has to go out into the bush and travel around to the different areas, and they can't get there for many, many months. Right. That's that's correct. You know, and your, your numbers aren't far off, John. Actually, the ratios here in the United States, of course, it would depend on the diocese where you're located, but... Uh, I would say here in our diocese, probably one priest for every couple thousand Catholics. Okay. But in the Amazon region, I think I saw the ratio was one priest for every 15,000 of the faithful. And as you mentioned, and uh, these people live in very remote areas, which are not easily traveled to, and that presents challenges. So literally, they can go months, months without 
the Eucharist or without the sacrament of reconciliation and without the other sacraments of our faith. And so the Holy Father gathered the bishops together to address some of these issues and some of the dialogue that took place trickled here into the United States because I was getting asked questions from my non-Catholic friends asking me, what's this about priests, about women being ordained, about priests that can get married? Uh, Because that's what the national secular news was putting out there, and it's led to some confusion. Yeah, those were, uh, you're right, those were certainly the headlines that came out of the, the synod. So maybe I should just explain for a moment that after a synod concludes, or at the conclusion of the synod, the bishops who participated submit a series of proposals or a document uh, to the Holy Father for him to consider and to pray about. But they don't have any magisterial authority, so just because they think something should happen at the synod uh, doesn't mean that it's going to. So what they've done is they've concluded the synod, they submitted all of their recommendations or suggestions to Pope Francis, who will now pray over that. And then ultimately he will issue a final document, uh, a post-synodal exhortation is usually what it's called, and that will have more specific actions that he wants to take. So among the things that were proposed by the bishops at the synod was to ordain men who are married priests as a means of being able to provide the the sacraments to the people there on a more regular basis. Now, our listeners should know that married priesthood has been part of the Catholic Church for centuries. In fact, we have married priests in the Catholic Church today, primarily in the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, as well as, for example, Episcopal or Anglican priests who become Catholic, who are married, and then ultimately desire to be ordained priests. We have a procedure for that as well. So that's nothing new, but it's unusual, and that's, I think, why it got the headlines that it did. And we're not necessarily seeing that there would be a rule change where somebody going through seminary or even right after they're ordained can then go out and get married. And that's certainly not going to take place here in the States. No, this would be strictly for the Amazon region. In fact, another proposal was to establish an Amazon rite. So just like we have ritual churches in the Eastern rite of the Catholic Church, we could have an Amazon rite which would have some of its own particular practices which are applicable to the clergy and to the people there, but not here in the United States. And I think the Synod Fathers recognize that women in the Amazon region need to have a greater role in the life of the church, much like they do here in the United States in terms of being involved in the parishes, even pastoral councils, having positions of leadership, not necessarily being ordained, although as we know, our Holy Father has called for that question to be explored, the possibility of ordaining women deacons. But certainly the Synod recognized that women are called and should have a greater role in the life of the church and the spreading of the faith. And we know here in the United States, it's a much different culture here where women are very much involved. But if you go to the Middle East, If you go to regions uh, of different countries in Africa, South America, a lot of times women in leadership just, they they just don't exist because of the culture. Sure, uh, there's definitely cultural influences that prevent women from having a more significant role in the life uh, of the church. And, but that's not the case here in the United States, you know. We also have many women that are working at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops office in Washington, and that's where the bishops will be having their meeting here in the next week or so. I know there's a lot on the agenda. So every year, the the bishops, we meet twice. 
So we are our main meeting, the big meeting, so to speak, is in November every year, and it's in Baltimore. And you might say, well, why is it in Baltimore? Well, there's a historical reason for that. Uh, Baltimore was the first diocese that was established here in the United States. And so because of that historical significance, that's where we meet. If we were looking to be centrally located, John, we probably would meet out in Kansas, uh, Kansas or <laughs> right, someplace right, right. in the middle part of the country. But for historical reasons, we meet in Baltimore, the first sea here in the U.S. And it's uh, very much of a, a business meeting. Now, our, our summer meeting, which happens usually in June, they rotate locations for that throughout the country. You're being installed as the director of finance, is it? For the uh, no, I'm, I'm going to take over as treasurer. So treasurer. I was elected a treasurer at last year's uh, meeting in November, and I had kind of a year to, to kind of sit with that and learn a little bit about the responsibilities, but I actually take over as treasurer after this November meeting. Other items on the agenda that might have a trickle-down effect to bearish? One of the major things is uh, looking at what's called the Program for Priestly Formation, so uh, we're going to be looking at a revision to that. Now, what that is, for lack of a better way of saying it, is it's kind of a guidebook for how we train our seminarians. The, it talks about their formation for priesthood and gives some guidelines and things that we need to focus on during their formation. So we're going to be looking at a slight revision to that, and the bishops will be voting on that to submit to Rome for their approval. We're also going to be electing other officers. As I mentioned, I was elected treasurer last year. Every three years, we elect a new president of the conference and a vice president. So that'll be happening at next week's meeting in Baltimore. We're going to be looking at issuing a statement regarding the vision for Hispanic ministry here in the United States. As we know, uh, there's an increasing number of Hispanic Catholics. In fact, it's the fastest growing segment in our church. So we want to come out with a clear vision of how we're going to minister to and involve, you know, the Hispanic Catholics in our faith. So for your role as treasurer, and I think maybe we may have touched on this, if not, I heard it from someone else, but the parishioners, we're all familiar with the annual pastoral appeal, where uh, part of our treasure then comes to the diocese to help the diocese operate in its various ministries. Not only do we do that for our diocese, but then the diocese all, how many dioceses are there in the country? Oh, there's, I think, about 180 okay. dioceses. So all of them have to send in a, tax is not the right word, an a assessment. gift, an assessment to the USCCB to help the ministries there nationally. And then some of that then goes to Rome. Is that correct? Yeah. So just like um, each parish would have a budget that they would develop every year, and each diocese would have a budget that they need to operate within for the coming year, so it is with the Bishop's Conference and the work and ministry of the Bishop's Conference. We develop a budget every year. We have a pretty sizable staff located in Washington, uh, which serves all of our dioceses around the country and assists them in their work and ministry. So we do have to, to raise funds for that. And the way the funds are raised is an assessment is made to each diocese based on the size of the diocese. And then I know that there's even some mission dioceses around the, uh, the U.S., even though, you know, we're, we're in a major metropolitan market. But there are some small dioceses or actually geographically large dioceses, but with small populations that uh, I'm sure some of the assessments help them in their ministry work. Well, not usually. I mean, oh, really? we're, we're there okay. to support those dioceses with uh, with staff and that type of support. But there's other collections which uh, assist mission dioceses throughout okay. the United States. 
shifting gears now. It's confirmation season. I've, every time I seems like I pop on my social media, you're at a parish, and I know that um, it's an exciting time for many of uh, the young people that are coming into the church. And I want to start a segment looking at the sacraments. Confirmation is one of them, but you can't get to confirmation without baptism. What are the seven sacraments of the church? So the seven sacraments would be, and I guess this would be maybe in somewhat of an order, but uh, would, of course, be baptism, sacrament of reconciliation, confirmation uh, would be the sacrament of matrimony or sacrament of holy orders, and then finally the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. Okay. And, of course, the Eucharist. Did I mention that? Uh, You just did. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So the first one is baptism. That's one that often, as as young Catholics, we might experience, but don't remember because many people are baptized as infants. Why infant baptism? So we believe that, um, of course, in each of the sacraments, we receive God's grace, which is God's very life, which we need to, to be the person and to become the person that God has created us to be, to live a life of, of goodness and of holiness and of virtue. And so the church believes that we should give that grace to a person as soon as possible. So that's why we do it. Typically for infants or children that are just born, either a few weeks or a few months, parents will present their child for baptism to receive that grace, to be welcomed in as a member of God's family, and then be open to a life of grace through the other sacraments. There is a specific formula, what they call the Trinitarian formula. Trinitarian formula. Right. So the Trinitarian formula, as the name suggests, is based on the Trinity. So when we baptize uh, anyone, we baptize them with water and in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it's very important to use those particular names during that sacrament. I know that people that have maybe come from another faith tradition, that's a question that is asked when they're wanting to come into the church. How were you baptized? Because I guess there's different, as you mentioned, ways of baptism. With an infant, obviously, it's there's sprinkling of water. But as you get older at some churches, you've got the full immersion. Is there yeah, per- personal preference? No, I mean, it, well, it's basically whatever the particular practices of the priest or the parish in which the baptism takes place. Most often it's done at the baptismal font, which is typically a a more permanent structure uh, or feature within a church, and is very often located near the entrance of the church because baptism is the sacrament by which we enter into God's family and into that life of grace. So the font is at the entrance of the church, and that's also why we have holy water fonts or stoops by the doors of the church so that when we enter into the church we bless ourselves with holy water which reminds each of us of the saving waters of baptism through which we have come through if a parent has a child they want to have them baptized is there a time of year that they should do it or do they just go to the church and they arrange for a specific weekend or how does that work yeah, for the most part, we can do baptisms through most of the, the liturgical year. There are some occasions when we wouldn't do them on certain feast days or holy days. You know, for example, just like Good Friday, we wouldn't probably do a baptism on Good or, Friday. Or Lent, do you do them during Lent? Typically not, although, of course, that sacrament can be offered anytime if it's an emergency. You know, we don't want to, don't want to make somebody wait if it's an emergency, a medical sure. emergency or whatnot. But there are just because of the significance of the liturgical seasons and the meaning of them, there's some that are more appropriate than others. Easter's a big time. 
Easter is a huge time for, for baptisms and confirmations and uh, marriages and all those different things. Yes. I, know, I know that when I've watched you in the videos and being there live, seeing at the Easter vigil, the baptisms, to me, seeing you do that, it's just a great inspiration, and I think it really touches you in a special way, it seems like. It does. It's uh, at the Easter Vigil, which is, of course, on Holy Saturday evening, so the, the night before Easter. We celebrate Easter Vigil at all of our parishes, and usually at that Mass, it's the adults or children who are of age, meaning seven years or older, who would be baptized, who would be confirmed and receive the Eucharist for the first time. I think the, the thing that is very moving for me when you baptize an adult, for example, or a young adult, or even a teenager, younger child, is that they've made that decision themselves. You know, you mentioned earlier about infants being baptized and they don't really know what's going on. You know, those that are, are baptized at Easter have gone through a kind of a long process of praying and, and learning about our faith and have made that decision to follow Christ and to be a member of the Catholic Church. I think that's very special. Uh, it is. It is. And you can see it and hear it in the in the voices of the people when you ask them that question as they enter for full immersion into the font. First question I ask is after they, at the cathedral here in St. Petersburg, they actually step into the font, kind of kneel down, and then I take a pitcher and, and pour water all over them. So it's a very um, rich in terms of the, the sacrament. But when they, before I do baptize them, I ask them, I use their name, and I say, is it your will? You know, John, is it your will that you be baptized in the faith which we have all just professed with you? Because they make a profession of faith beforehand, and they answer yes. And when they answer yes, we, we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a very spiritually moving time to watch the people come out, almost in, many of them in tears. In many fact. are in tears. And uh, this past year, actually, I think maybe for the first time, I, I baptized a, a young woman who had a baby. And so I, I baptized the mom. And then right after she was baptized, I baptized her, her baby. And that was really special. Sure. I was not baptized in the Catholic Church, uh, but I got married in the Catholic Church. And I know some of the questions that were asked of me, well, do you have a baptismal record from your other church? Do you have to be baptized in order to get married in the Catholic Church? Well, to, to be married in the Catholic Church, at least one of the parties would need to be Catholic. Okay. So uh, both don't have to be but at least one of the parties would be. We, we wouldn't bap marry a couple, I'm sorry, unless one of the parties were Catholic. Okay, so in order to get married in the church, if either party is from another faith tradition, and they say, you know what, we've been coming to this Catholic church because it's close by in the neighborhood, we like the pastor, and we, we've come to ask Father to witness our marriage. Father's going to say, you need to come into the church first. No, not necessarily. Okay. A, a Catholic can uh, marry a baptized non-Catholic in the Catholic Church. We just usually ask for a, a record of their baptism in whatever particular church or denomination in which they were baptized, just so that we know for sure that it was done according to the Trinitarian formula and with water. That's the important thing. Sure. So the, the Catholic Church accepts as valid baptisms in other faiths, as long as it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and with water. We don't make people get rebaptized, but we do want to verify that they have been baptized and how they receive that baptism, because some denominations, uh, you're baptized not with water, but in the Spirit. 
and that would not be considered a valid baptism in the Catholic Church. Okay. So to be clear, if a couple moves into the neighborhood right across the street from the cathedral, let's say, neither one are Catholic, but they start attending Mass at, at, at the cathedral, and they go to Father Pruel and say, we're interested in getting married here. Father Pruel would say, well, it would be a good idea if you came into the church first before you got married. Or Yeah, I would say he would probably require that. Yeah. So, yeah, he would say, well, really the first thing that we need to do is to, if they're already baptized in another non-Catholic faith uh, or denomination, that they should uh, come into full communion in the Catholic Church, or if they've never been baptized, that they should go through the RCIA program uh, to be baptized and receive confirmation and Eucharist, and then to celebrate the sacrament of marriage. Which leads us to our next little comment, our little segment we're going to call Grow in Your Love, Grow in Your Faith, our listener mailbag, talking about receiving communion. This listener writes, she says, I do not receive communion on my hands, and I wonder why if we hear that the hands are not clean enough to receive him, why is it permissible in the church? Very good question, but I would say a couple of things. First of all, with regard to the cleanliness of of hands, before we go to church, we should always wash our hands if we know that we're going to be receiving communion and receiving it in the hand. Receiving in the hand is one of two options for receiving the Eucharist, the other being on the tongue. So if we choose to receive on the tongue, as we approach the priest or the minister, we would open our mouth and extend our tongue so that the priest or minister could put the consecrated host, the Eucharist, the Lord, safely and securely on our tongue. The other option is to receive in the hand in which you extend your hand almost like a throne and hold it flat so that the Eucharist can be placed on the hand and then very easily and securely taken by the communicant and placed in their mouth. Either one of those are are both acceptable ways to receive the Eucharist, but I would just say that both ways it should be received with reverence and with a spirit of awe at the uh, real presence of our Lord. And the word cleanliness in the question could have a double meaning. It could be a a physical cleanliness or even a spiritually be unclean. We're supposed to go to the Sacrament of Reconciliation before we receive yeah, so we, we should always be in a state of grace. In other words, if we're aware that we've committed a, a serious sin or a mortal sin, we should not go to communion before receiving God's forgiveness through the sacrament of reconciliation. And usually that's available. I know oftentimes my wife and I will go to Mass on a Saturday vigil Mass. So usually half an hour to 45 minutes before Mass, there's usually opportunities for confession as well. And uh, I would encourage any of our listeners, if they want to find out more about the Sacrament of Reconciliation, obviously look to the church. You can go to the local church's website, and they'll give you the times for that special sacrament. Bishop, as we close up today, would you lead us in a prayer, thanksgiving, and of hope as we enter into, as we get draw that much closer to thanksgiving? Sure. So, Heavenly Father, we we praise you, and as always, we thank you for all the blessings that you have given to us, and we're especially mindful this time of year of all that we have, but also mindful of those who don't have, who lack or are in need of some, some of the basic things that we take for granted. We pray that through our love and through our charity, through our compassion, that we may satisfy their needs, that we may be your hands reaching out to them. And we just ask that we may always be grateful 
and recognize that all of our blessings come from you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For more with Bishop Parks, including past programs, his social media accounts, and ways to subscribe to this podcast, visit dosp.org bishop. A View from the Top is a production of Spirit FM 90.5 and the Communications Office of the Catholic Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is made possible by the annual pastoral appeal and listeners like you. Thank you for your support.